1: Hello, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by
2: Noah. Hi, y'all. And Rich. Hi.
1: Today, we're going to be talking about a recent proposal by the Kamala Harris Campaign for President, which seeks to effectively extend the school day or extend the time kids are spending in schools. And as we're going to explain during this episode, this is very much an issue about labor and work. Um, I know, Noah, you're a teacher. This is why you wanted to talk about this and Sort of tell us what caught your eye here.
2: Well, so the proposal not only extends the school day, but apparently extends effectively the school year. It's, it says that it intends to keep schools open um, throughout the full workday and actually extend that workday to, you know, 6 p.m. when mm-hmm. people are getting off work uh, throughout the year, including summers, winter breaks, whatever, that schools would effectively only be closed um for things like federal holidays and
1: whatnot and the weekend
2: and the yeah. weekend yeah i mean the thing that immediately caught my eye as a teacher is the part where the kamala harris campaign claims and i'm sure they genuinely believe this that uh, teachers would not be asked to work more hours than they already do unless they volunteer for it and or are compensated fairly these two things are somehow supposed to coexist mm-hmm. um which I I don't want to get into right now because I I, I want to talk about what the proposal does yeah. more before it, I go there. But it it was the immediate like we need to discuss this. Yeah,
1: uh, I have the press release right in front of me. I can read from that. It, effectively, what. It's a pilot program in essence. Mm -hmm. Um, It would award five-year grants of up to $5 million total to school districts to transform elementary schools serving a high number of (laughs) low-income families into family-friendly schools that – Collaborate with community partners to develop high-quality, culturally relevant, linguistically accessible, developmentally appropriate academic, athletic, or enrichment opportunities for students from at least 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday during the school year, with no closures except for holidays, weekends, and emergencies. Do not close for parent-teacher conferences, professional development, or any other reason without offering that same full-day enrichment activities. And do not increase the amount of time teachers and staff have to work unless they choose to work additional hours and are compensated fairly for the additional hours. That's how they word it. Um, There's a lot of um, not means testing, but like qualifying. Mm -hmm. Just um, yeah, there's this is very targeted, which is sort of been a theme for the Harris campaign and for that that branch of liberalism, especially Already, we're starting with a pilot program. That after five years, where's this money going to come from? Right. You know, if, if if it does succeed, you know, how do you continue that? You're also talking about just schools that have a lot of low-income families. The idea that other schools might benefit from this, we're not going to test that out just yet. Mm-hmm.
2: I I think I hadn't read the press release mm-hmm. until uh, this morning. <laughs> And I think what immediately struck me was transforming okay. elementary schools into a capital F family, capital F friendly, capital S schools. Yes. Um, whenever, whenever you have an initiative that, you know, seeks to, um, transform, re- transform. Yeah. Oh. Well, uh, Modernize was the other word they used. Yes. For- oh, love it. Modernization. But whenever you seek to, to do this, it just, I, I don't understand how in the year of our Lord 2019 you can get away with claiming that that this is not going to sound horrendously dystopian. I mean, family-friendly school is like a thing that would exist in, uh, I don't know, like a Fallout video game or something. Point is, it, it so there's there's the problem of the money. Where is it going to come from? How do you continue that program after five years? If it succeeds, do you expand it? Uh, How do you expand it? How do you fund that? There's also the issue of – so you were talking about the the, the way that it specifically targets things. Not that a program like this shouldn't take into account the needs and wants and, and the cultural relevances of the students that it's serving. But you can tell that they almost don't want this to succeed from the Mm get-go because they're placing all of these constraints already on the program succeeding. Mm -hmm. So everything has to have six adjectival phrases in front of it, you know, like it's uh, high-class food. It it can't just be – it, it, and, and these are going to be more boxes to check at the end yes. of the day. This is going to be more paperwork for somebody, right? Yes. And I'm telling you right now that it is going to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. As as somebody who works in that field, there there is no there is no incentive. So, to the extent that our educational system succeeds, and we can argue about what extent that is. It succeeds because there is a massive amount of unpaid labor being done by not just teachers, really, by school employees in general. Um, I don't know a single person who works in primary or secondary education who is not doing a massive amount of their job at home. I'm probably on the low end of the scale, and I still take more of my job home than really anybody should have to. Mm-hmm. And There is no incentive for anyone else, not for students, not for parents, not for school administrators, not for guidance counselors, not for anybody to reduce that load on teachers because everyone supports teachers, quote-unquote, as long as they do the work, as long as they're willing to martyrize themselves and give up whatever time they have left. So. What administrators will do is they'll ask who wants to work these enrichment programs. And then after a year, it won't be a volunteer assignment that's compensated. It'll be for free. And then after that, it will be an expectation. And by the end of the five years, it will be a requirement on in your contract.
3: What struck me about the bill, I mean, a number of things, but you know, just riffing off what Noah's saying there, there's no acknowledgement that teachers are workers too, that have families that need taken care of. Uh, outside of their work hours. So the, immediately it's siloing teachers as people who don't have families, people who don't work. It's a separate category entirely. Um, and then on top of that, what's also missing from the bill is uh any idea of expanding the workforce inside the schools to accommodate these extra hours. Like it's right there in the language of the press release and of the bill. It's, you know, teachers can volunteer and be, you know, whatever she says, fairly and respectfully compensated. But that just means instead of working eight hours, they'd be volunteering to work 12 hours a day in a, a field where burnout is already uh, kind of the norm, particularly in the, in the, the kinds of school districts that uh, Harris's bill would be targeting.
2: It's very wonkery liberalism, which always in the subject of education always runs up against the fact that they can't get out of their own way. They have to consider teachers as just kind of worker drones. That show up and and it's very ironic because a lot of these people are the same people who tell you that, you know, you don't want to treat kids as just uh, empty vessels who receive content and blah, blah, blah. But the way that they treat teachers is as dispensers of content, even when they're telling teachers that that's what they shouldn't be. Um, And they can't break out of that thought pattern. And you see that throughout this bill, as Rich was saying, there's no acknowledgement that eventually you're just legitimately going to have to hire more people. To do this, you're going to have to train those people because you can't just pull in anybody. I mean, we already run into problems all the time with uh, nonprofits and organizations that work with schools that are not remotely vetted or uh, prepared to take care of children, and are sending undertrained, if trained at all, employees to go work with students. And then every time we find out that uh, that you know, the organization wasn't legit or the, they didn't vet this employer or whatnot, everyone kind of goes like, how could this possibly happen? And it's like, well, there's no time and money to do it there because there's no one to do it in the first place. That that goes on somebody's plate that's already super full.
1: No, I'm, I'm curious about something in here. Um, this oh, bit boy. about not closing for uh, parent-teacher conferences or professional development. Now, I remember being in school and every – it seemed like once a month or so, there'd be a professional development day. And hey, I had Friday off. That, that mm-hmm. I didn't question it. But just what goes on during these days? And is it really feasible to not close for these things?
2: So we we close, I believe, two days a year for okay. professional development. One in fall, one in spring. And we don't close, by the way, for parent-teacher conferences except mm-hmm. for one of our younger grades. But the kids I <laughs> – I do believe they have that off. There, there is no. There uh, is no – there has been a move to try and do enrichment that mm-hmm. day for them. But again, they haven't been able to find anyone right. to do it. Um, for professional development, usually what happens on those days is that administration chooses a topic and then we sit around and talk about it all day and promise that we'll form a committee to act on it and then nothing gets done. Now, I will say my school is in kind of a unique situation there because I do know teachers that have professional development opportunities that actually matter. You know, like they, they, they will bring in, uh, different speakers or, or educators from the area to share skills or share presentations, things like that, stuff that teachers would actually want to see. And I do know of at least one school district in the area that replaces one of its professional development days with literally a self care day. Like teachers can go. To the school and spend time with colleagues in a way that's not structured and that isn't specifically about education, which as somebody who is in a field that there aren't a lot of teachers and, mm-hmm. and, and knows how lonely that gets, the idea that you might spend time with your colleagues in an unstructured way within the building that you all see as a source of community, you know, that, mm-hmm. that might be nice, but it's an eighth month to most school administrators and, uh, parents for sure.
1: Well. I mean, this is a point you make frequently on this show. As soon as people start unionizing during those hours, it, it will stop, right? That's true. Yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen.
2: Um, to be fair, it, it is a public school district, so that's already – that horse already left, but
1: right. just a lot of this seems aimed at the parents in the situation, but I do want to talk about the students themselves. Mm-hmm. And I, I know when I was in elementary school, the idea of spending this much extra time in school around like the people I hated would not have, I would not have liked that. So much of this seems like the kids are sort of an afterthought, even as the mm. language is about, you know, we're going to make sure this is education for them. We're going to make sure this is enriching, but I don't know if there's really a, a de- demand or desire from students to it, spend this extra time in, in school. Instead well, of at home.
3: Kamala Harris is a cop. She was a district attorney in California for the better part of her professional career. And during that time, she built a reputation as an especially punitive district attorney. Uh, for instance, she, she, she gained notoriety for, uh, jailing parents whose students were tardy, uh, too often. So her, her approach to parenting and school, uh, even building into this bill has always been coercive. And I see in this just a continuation of that basic mindset. Her solution to the very real social problem that Americans work too much, uh, low-income Americans in particular, are working multiple jobs with varied schedules that make uh, a standardized school day very difficult to accommodate, is to institutionalize the students. It's to in- essentially jail them in the schools, the, keep the them schools there longer. The schools
1: become a place to house students. Yes.
3: That's, all, that's all it will serve. That's all I can imagine it serving. And I imagine that's kind of the point. And then on top of that, by particularly targeting low-income elementary schools, we know that she's targeting elementary schools, primarily populations of students of color, by keeping them there longer, uh, by keeping them into these institutions longer, it's only furthering uh the roots of the school to prison pipeline mm-hmm. you know I, I don't know that she sits there machiavellian like you know plotting her next move against the people of of the united states but that would seem to me given the current structures of the education system to be the logical end game if this bill were to pass and were to become kind of the norm uh of how education
2: works that's, that's what makes the targeting of low income schools so sinister. Because if this was a universal program, then at least you could argue, well, you know, different schools will get to experiment and maybe some things work better and, and other things. And, and they can kind of spread that knowledge around because, um, well, to be fair, they're going to be spreading it to the people in the building who are least likely to do anything with it. But. I I agree with Rich. I don't uh in in kind of a weird way. I don't think anybody on the Harris campaign, you know, steepled their fingers together and was like, "Let me figure out how to keep school, uh, keep kids in school for you know <laughs> what is it, uh, eight, ten uh, hours ten hours a day." day. Uh, but I I have to imagine that at least one of the people working on this used to be some mid level functionary in the Department of Education, because if you take a class with anybody who deals with governmental affairs. Uh, in financing educational stuff, what they'll immediately tell you is that the department has two ways to do things. It has the carrot approach. It can reward schools for doing the right mm-hmm. thing. And it has the stick approach. It can deny funding to schools for doing the wrong thing. And this is very much born out of that idea that we'll, we'll just throw money at some schools to do the right thing and hope that they'll take it and do that with it instead of in a country where schools are grossly underfunded, you know, seeing it as, as a chance to maybe, I don't know, fix up a physical plant or hire uh, not even necessarily a teacher, hire, I don't know, facility staff or a new counselor or social worker or something.
3: Yeah. And another consequence of this, it, and again, not from necessarily sinister backroom dealings, just like the core assumption of liberalism mm-hmm. being the, the amelioration of capitalism is this is socializing children for the overlong workday. Yep. From a young age you're going to be led to expect that you're going to be held in a singular place for anywhere from 8 to 10 hours and that is just uh how how things are. That's just normal. Um and what we want to push back against is the idea that, you know, spending that much time at work whether it's at school or in the workplace is an abomination
2: which which is something that we understand otherwise when it comes to school like i i like to point out that a lot of my students will deal with a bad teacher in a very different way than they will ever deal with a bad boss you know that we repeatedly tell students Well, mostly white students and mostly middle class and above students to advocate for themselves when it comes to dealing with a teacher who's not doing their job correctly. But then we tell them to knuckle under and accept authority when it's the person who's signing their paycheck. So what you're going to get with these enrichment programs, I mean, look at what Rich said just blew my mind because it made me think, imagine how many more chances that gives a school resource officer or somebody like that to start a paper trail on you know an eight-year-old who's kind of angry occasionally
3: your, your permanent record now it also includes like the quote-unquote criminal things the the police mm-hmm. observe you doing in your school uh as well and like you know that's perfectly right to observe that that would be part of the extension of that process just giving more opportunities for the criminalization of mm-hmm. students
2: well you're gonna have to have somebody there now in, in those schools because th- there's no way they're gonna um, allow the school day to continue without that
1: Now, there's a a right wing trope in this country about how public schools are indoctrinating our kids. And there's been certainly been reaction towards this plan to see, "Ah, you you want them in school longer so that you can keep feeding them more uh, liberal propaganda, which
3: that's where I learned to become a socialist in the public schools of America.
1: I mean, we sort of think that's silly, but also I think it's worth wondering, you know, what is going to be the content of these after-school programs? It's famous that textbooks in Texas are very different from those in New York. There is some level of bias Mm -hmm. bias and some level of uh, rewriting
2: history that goes on in American schools as is. I would imagine that a lot of these programs are not going to be academically focused, first Mm -hmm. of all. Um, uh, Some will be, I'm sure, but I think what you're going to get is – this this is basically – should this plan go through and if it continues to expand in those schools, what it's going to be is essentially uh, – I don't even want to say a jobs program. It's just going to go to line the pockets of various small business owners in the area. Like I fully expect that it will be somebody getting kids to do work that normally their employees would have to because they can bring the materials to a school. See, I'm just stuff picturing like,
1: like a study hall
2: that's probably what some schools will resort to doing yeah. when they can't find anybody to come in and you know figure that out but i think some i think for some schools they're going to gamely attempt mm-hmm. to do some of these things and so you're going to end up with the most because again the thing is in this country we also one of the ways in which we disrespect education is that we think that everybody can do it better than the people currently doing it so what you're going to get is like in, in at least some of these schools, there's going to be somebody from the Department of Education just being like, why don't you bring in this community organization or that one? And you'll be like uh, – because they don't know what they're talking about and they're not going to teach anything and it's just going to be a free-for-all uh, with no real value for the students. And they'll be like, yeah, but look, they've got glitzy presentations and whatever, so bring them in. And That, I think, is going to be a large part of it.
3: Have, have Officer Friendly come in and do his D.A.R.E. program. <laughs> You know during the the enrichment period,
2: I mean they, honestly or
3: like you said earlier, like the NGO complex, you know it won't matter if they're they're trained or it's an appropriate activity the The fact is they exist and they'll be able to skim mm-hmm. uh, just by saying the words education, enrichment, family friendly other you know fun buzzwords, stem, STEM sure yeah uh, and you know it won't actually teaching stem through dance. I'd take that class
2: I mean so would <laughs> I, but i I have to imagine that that's coming down the pike. We'll be back after this break trying to talk about
1: the broader implications for this proposal.
0: You're listening to Punching Out
2: on W-A-Y-O-L-P Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.
1: Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hi, all And Rich. It's me. Um, we've been talking about a proposal by Kamala Harris, which would uh, keep kids in
2: school for 10 hours a day, among other things. All year. I, I feel like it's an underrated we, part of the proposal. Yeah, that we... I, it would be year round.
1: I, I, it wasn't clear to me, but they're like... Yes. Yeah. Including summer programming in that? Yeah. Uh, one um, what, what, another thing we didn't mention in that opening segment is just we didn't really get into why she's doing this and her stated reasons for like the the problem she's seeking to solve. Oh, OK.
2: Here. I um, was going to say I felt like Rich pretty much got into it when he said mm-hmm. she's a cop. My, mine, Instead, was, mine
3: was more conspiracy.
0: Yeah. Oh,
1: these oh. are the stated reasons for. All right. Here's why this needs to happen from uh, the press release I m- mentioned earlier. up. Uh, Quote Throughout the United States, current school schedules make life harder for working families. Research shows that schools are shut down for an average of 29 days throughout the school year. With the vast majority of schools closing at or around 3 p.m., two hours short of the standard full-time workday, parents are often left in a bind. Additionally, summer breaks present a challenge. In fact, three in four parents report at least some difficulty finding child care during that time period. The economic cost of this problem is substantial. Schools are closed for two weeks longer than the typical American with paid leave has in paid holidays and vacation. Further, 39% of all workers and 80% of low-wage workers lack access to any paid vacation time. She's getting closer to a real issue here. but
3: You're almost there, Kamala.
1: Yeah. I I don't know if this, as we're going to discuss, this solution doesn't. I I feel
2: like the left turn at Albuquerque is Um, coming up here.
1: This places a financial burden on parents and caregivers to either pay for additional childcare or take leave without pay to care for their child. While the misalignment of school and work schedules affects all families, low-income households often shoulder the greatest burden, especially those with unpredictable or inflexible work schedules. The, the left turn is her proposed solution, which is yeah. keeping kids in school longer rather than seeking to ameliorate the
2: other real problems she just laid out. For me the left turn is weaponizing low income families and and children low income mm-hmm. children especially as a way of deflecting criticism of what is a bad proposal. Right. It's um she's basically so childcare is a real problem mm-hmm. in the United States. There are many jurisdictions in the country where the cost of childcare is more than the cost of rent. Right. You know, it's and especially and you may have you you may hear of universal pre-k programs and stuff like that but the problem is that that does not cover children you know from age 0 born mm-hmm. until 3 or 4 or what have you depending on the the program and you know like they still need to be cared for they're not independent at those ages notoriously <laughs> so you have to find people to care for them and not everyone has you know available relatives or friends or can afford to stay at home But sometimes, in fact, can't afford not to stay at home because they can't pay for the care of the child Um, and because the way that we have set up uh, labor and and, – or sorry, domestic labor, taking care of the family in this country, mothers in particular are bearing still an outsized burden of finding or providing this healthcare, which means that as a result, their career prospects continue to suffer – for choosing to have children which is a thing that you know men mm-hmm. are typically not demerited for yeah I,
3: I meant to mention this in the first segment so i'll just introduce mine by way of saying uh how are these children going to be fed yeah, we, we know uh, an issue in schools these days is kids coming hungry mm-hmm. uh, kids being penalized for school lunch debt and this is just making more time uh, of the day where these kids are potentially mm-hmm. going hungry or otherwise being penalized for uh, yep. you know, not not have not being able to afford food. And I'll, I, I'll, I'll I guess
1: to, to play devil's advocate here, there's also the potential that this might include dinner, which. School, some students might not otherwise yeah
3: you know. i mean that uh, would be great i mean we're going to have a we're going to be talking later about like how this could theoretically work from a socialist mm-hmm. perspective and that would absolutely be part of it but it's not in the proposal now yeah
2: i think that is again something that you would see wildly vary from district to district mm-hmm. because for example Ro- the rochester city school district one of the various reasons that they will open unless Uh, conditions are really really bad in the city is because sometimes you know that's the meal that that kid's going to have and uh, the district doesn't feel okay closing schools down if it means you know that kid goes unfed that day right which is like an unfortunate choice, they have we, to make. We've seen
1: this in some uh, recent teacher strikes where there have been mm-hmm. efforts from the striking teachers to make sure that kids still
2: get their lunches as they would have mm-hmm. if schools were not closed down. Which again uh, sort of speaks to a couple points that we made in the first segment. One, that when other workers strike, they're allowed to be m- not selfish exactly, but they're allowed to mostly care about their own demands. You know, mm-hmm. um, when teachers strike, they need to ensure. They need to have the best PR in the world to demand things. So the CTU strike, which happened recently, the demands were not for salary. The demands were to have librarians and social workers and nurses in schools. And and just as an aside, a lot of like contracts and
1: uh, laws even prohibit teachers from striking for anything other than salary and benefits. Right.
3: That that was the thing with the CTU strike was the law actually was you couldn't strike for anything except salary and benefits. So they had to say – yeah, it's about salary and benefits, but, but also, also we need social yeah. workers, librarians, better school lunch, et cetera. So that all
2: things CTU is the, yeah. the Chicago Teachers Union. Yes, and thank you, Ryan. To be clear, these are things that the current mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, had explicitly promised and then denied. Hmm. So it was good on CTU for uh, you know basically skirting the law there.
3: They, they got rid of the ROM and got another ROM. Basically. Uh, sorry, sorry, everyone in Chicago. I, I know we got a ton of listeners from Chicago who are-
2: <laughs> do we? No, we don't. <laughs> I I really want to make, crack a joke about Chicago's nicknames now, but I yeah. won't. Anyway, the the problem that we have with proposals like this is that, uh, as Rich put it, they, they silo people who work in the school from everyone else. I mean, childcare workers now are not paid well. And that work is – it's expensive work to do in the mm-hmm. first place. Um which is one reason why the fees are so high and why there's no open spaces and blah blah, blah. Um, and that's not going to get better under this uh, theoretical proposal. I mean, there, there's, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that this proposal addresses a problem that requires a much broader, bigger, more visionary solution mm-hmm. with the same old tired crap that now this would be the third administration has been trying some variation of. Mm-hmm. Because there's not that much daylight between Bush's education secretaries and Betsy DeVos, right. ultimately, and what they would like to see. Um, uh, they, and, and there's not much daylight between the two of them and Arne Duncan either in sort of how they, they see education being solved. It's always through private organizations. It's always through relying on an army Of volunteers and badly paid workers and it is always 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 through a view of the student as a future drone that has no agency over their own development Mm -hmm. or enrichment to use their term
3: yeah i mean just to reiterate the point from the first segment the solution to the crisis of american overwork is to create new overwork for a different segment of workers Mm -hmm. here the teachers um and i think that that what the what the Law is addressing in uh, a really oblique way is that Americans work more than any other people in the world. Uh,
2: they mention it.
3: They mention it, and yeah. then, but the solution is like, all right, well, since Americans work so much, let's make children work more. Let's mm-hmm. make teachers work more. Let's let line it up on the worst possible end of it. And it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's an interesting comment on uh, um, how Americans organize their labor and how liberals conceive of Americans who labor the work day used to be sun up to sundown but over the course of that work day you didn't do a, so much work you would work a little bit drink work a little bit more have lunch work a little bit mm-hmm. you know hang out with your friends what changed was industrialization and then you know that sun up to sundown became uh instead of a more leisured workplace it became aggressive
1: people were explicitly paying you for your time your
3: time exactly right. and- And then, so the campaigns of the early labor wars were about reducing the workday. So it was a 10-hour workday and then an eight-hour workday. And then Um, after the eight-hour workday, we stopped. stopped. Why did we stop at eight hours? The workday should be significantly less than it is. Mm -hmm. That's where we need to address this issue so parents can have more time with their kids. Mm -hmm. They don't have to worry about childcare because they're not working so much and they're still getting the same salary for their productivity.
1: Um. Mm -hmm. There's a piece in the outline that responded to this proposal by Albert Berneco, who uh, until recently wrote for Deadspin. RIP. He and mm-hmm. all of the other of that site's Been writers it, quit friends. in protest of their private equity dumb bosses.
3: Deadspin was a good website.
2: Yeah. Um, Possibly the only good website. <laughs> the one.
1: And he very much takes Harris to task for not really getting the right question here. He starts with, quote, But what is the nature of the problem? Try phrasing it in one sentence and see what sounds right. The existence of dependent children makes it too hard for poor people to spend all their time at work. No, that's not it. These (laughs) damn lazy teachers think they can just clock out and go home at the end of a normal workday instead of providing daycare for other people's children in what would ordinarily be considered a normal dinner time. And that's all messed up. Still not it. What, What he gets eventually to is... The problem for kids is not that the hours of 4 to 6 p.m., they lack the presence of an underpaid, overworked guardian casting a bleary and deeply resentful eye over their haphazardly structured time spending. The problem for kids is that the constraints of American life categorize them as an expensive drag on Mm -hmm. their parents' work productivity and values their parents solely in terms of that work productivity. And that arrangement is fundamentally monstrous, immoral, and anti-human.
2: Yeah, To the extent that 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 Mm right-wing argument about you just want them in school longer so you can indoctrinate them. you know, This is the kind of stuff that we're told only happens under a Soviet system. You know, Mm -hmm. schools being made to keep children longer so you can ensure that you know where they are while their parents are working for the glory of the state. Except in this case, it's not the glory of the state. It's the glory of some dude who's pocketing billions of dollars in other people's work. Right. Yeah, they're certainly being indoctrinated, but not in you know what you think they w- are what you in. think
3: they're being indoctrinated, in. and they're being indoctrinated in how to be a uh, disciplined, quiescent, mm-hmm. potential, productive future worker.
2: Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you right now who's not going to be disciplined into any of that, and it's the children of the rich. Yeah. They are the only ones who are actually allowed to be children in any real way, mm-hmm. all the way through well through the rest of their lives, because at this point, being wealthy is infantilizing. Mm-hmm.
1: They get we grow and we get um, this. Yep. Now, I I do want to point out, like, as we mentioned earlier, this program is targeted towards schools in low-income neighborhoods. And it's also targeted towards solving the problem of parents who work 9 to 5. But if there's one thing we know about low-income people in 2019, the standard 9 to 5 isn't all that standard. There are people working in the food industry and – other industries that do not keep to this strict business schedule and the benefits they'd see from a program like this are unclear.
3: Yeah, right. If, if you work second or third shift in any any job, you know this is not uh, toward your benefit at all. If you work a, a gig economy job, yeah, that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, the way they'll sell it is a combination of uh, California liberal esque, mm-hmm. you know. Uh well, this this will give you the flexibility to work from home and whatever. Because everyone whoever works a gig economy job clearly is just sitting with a laptop doing, you know, coding. Um a mix of that and I think the the typical, well, if if they maybe this gives them the chance to uh find a job that does allow them to do that because jobs mm-hmm. grow on trees. It's I mean, that's the thing. Like this is a proposal that is meant to dazzle you with the details. It's not hard to see. So uh, Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, and, um, I'll leave it there, uh, endorsed the bill. <laughs> the villain of the labor movement, I'll Thank say you. it. Yes, there we go. She endorsed this proposal on behalf of the AFT, I believe. And it's not hard to see why, because it's a bill that's meant to dazzle you with policy details and look comprehensive. <laughs> but as Bernanke was pointing out, The problem with the bill is that there's no heart to it. There's no – it's answering a problem that does exist by answering another question entirely. Mm -hmm. And the converse of what this
1: proposal does, which is extending the school day to match the workday, might be – reducing the workday to match the school day, which is the solution Berneco comes up with mm-hmm. in, in his article. Especially. Whoa, 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 are we getting positive early here? Uh, it, you need to tell no. me these things. I, I Shaking I'm things up. It's episode 92. Hell yeah. A <laughs> quote from near the end of the article now. So long as we're legislating changes to the contours of American life, is there some particular reason why these changes must extract yet more childhood from children rather than liberating workers from the stultifying dehumanizing ritual of occupying a boss's line of sight long enough to loosen his grip on each next paycheck if you have a nine-to-five type of job in america in 2019 you likely already know that half or more of your workday goes to needless make work BS, and soul-destroying hour-long meetings covering 30 seconds worth of ground. <laughs> I am breaking my neck, nodding this hard. Even worse, telework and the omnipresence of smartphones have already harmfully blurred the edges of the workday for laborers across vast sectors of American life. Even when you're not at work, you're almost never completely not at work. The eight-hour workday, even more than the six-hour school day, is a relic, a ritualized performance of
2: subservience. I mean, it is a relic, but it it is... So one, one thing that we always try to get through on this show is that the way that things are set up you know, is not for no reason. Mm-hmm. It, it is on purpose and it is for someone. And the reason that we have an eight-hour workday is because taking that big a chunk out of your day is less time you have to think about literally anything else. It's less time that you have to spend with your kids, with your friends, with your colleagues outside mm-hmm. of work, um, with any other uh, sort of worthwhile pursuit. I was just talking to a number of my colleagues and other things, and we all compared notes. And no matter what state, what school, what level, what courses, whatever, the one factor we all had in common is we all thought of our teaching lives even seven years ago and went, you know, we used to be able to do so much more with our days, and now it's basically all devoted to nothing but, not even teaching, like the Mm -hmm. classroom time, to all of the paperwork that we have to do around it.
3: Neoliberal capitalism profits off our alienation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it creates a void in our lives and fills it with, uh, make work, make work, yep. drugs, consumer items, whatever your particular, you know, gap filler for the lack of community in your life is. That's, that's where they make their money.
1: This, uh, Bernacco article reminded me of David Graeber's book, uh, BS Jobs, which talks a lot about th- this idea that we on this show, especially, have, and on the left have this idea of capitalism as this efficient machine that is grinding profits out from workers mm-hmm. but actually it's constructed according to the whims of bosses and often more towards flattering them and mm-hmm. affording them control and power over their workers' lives than to actually
2: being a productive engine and efficient yes because uh, because the thing is they don't want, productivity by itself. They want productivity with the ba- with a value-added bonus of, as Rich put it, a disciplined and quiescent workforce. That is far more valuable because it's one thing to have a, a worker who can produce at in, a, a workforce even, that can produce at outsized levels. But the moment that they recognize that they can do that and that that gives them power, you will no longer own them. And that is a bigger problem. So they're, they're willing in a weird way Despite how much they want to exploit workers for every possible iota of value, they're willing to take a short-term haircut to ensure that the gravy train will keep rolling.
3: And I I can see this measure being an exact – a perfect example of David Graver's hypothesis about BS jobs is it's not just BS jobs for teachers, it's also BS jobs for students now. Mm-hmm. It's extending that that dynamic to the school day.
2: And that's what they should rename the bill, BS Jobs for Students Act.
3: I'll <laughs> run it up the ladder at the Harris campaign and see, so see if it gets so any traction. Yeah, yeah,
2: there you go. And, and we've seen recently there's been a lot
1: of uh, studies and pilot programs of a four-day work week, which have almost uniformly seen wild success in terms of productivity you know everybody's happy but we don't see everybody adopting a four-day work week just yet because there are also downsides for the boss that can't be quantified in terms of productivity on the bottom line
3: or we mentioned deadspin earlier and it's a great example like by all accounts it was a profitable popular website that it's uh, short-sighted ownership canned because its workforce was not disciplined or quiescent Mm-hmm. They were they were focused on productivity, but they also maintained their independence. They were in a mm-hmm. union and the guy in charge couldn't tolerate that. And so it's not just about productivity, it's about power, hierarchy, control.
1: And, and this is something you get to frequently on this show. I, these people like control. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. I don't I, my my theory on that spin is that they did the they went in there knowing that they would do this. You know, this mm-hmm. wasn't uh, they, they weren't short-sighted uh, is what I'm saying. They
1: in this case being I mean, Great Jim Hill part- yes. Partners and Jim Spanfeller who yes. um, previously we discussed on this show as shutting down Splinter, their politics website. Mm-hmm.
2: And I think they did this on purpose. They knew that this was a media site that had the possibility to be profitable, to be productive and at the same time be mouthy and indiscreet and unfavorable to the kind of people that Great Hill Partners is made up of. Mm-hmm. And so it had to die. Yeah. And and that's how yeah. we are where we are. The ultimate problem here with this bill is that what it ends up doing is n- not just in, the, in much the same way, not just addressing a very broad problem with a very small Band-Aid-like solution, but that in every sentence of that bill, they have carved out ways for people to profiteer. There is no way in hell that this does not create the next stage in charter school networks, for example. There is no way in hell that this does not create an entirely new class of hucksters and grifters who will profit off of programs like this. You cannot turn over the education and raising of the children of the nation to simply by itself just longer hours in a building. It's a much wider issue than that. And to do do it the way that the Harris campaign wants to do it, not only impoverishes those kids, but uh, morally, spiritually, and economically will end up impoverishing us all.
1: We'll be back after this break to talk about what a good solution to the problems at hand might look like.
0: Hey, hey guys!
1: You know that feeling you have at work—that dead inside feeling? Bad news—we can't really help with that. Good news—we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LPFM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah, Hi y'all. and Rich. Hey. We've been talking about a proposal by Kamal Harris which seeks to solve the problem of the school day and the work day not aligning by keeping kids in school longer. Um, in this last segment, we're, we want to talk about what would be an actual solution to this problem and broad, more broadly the American system of child care, which is haphazard at best and stupidly expensive at worst.
2: Um,
3: it's both at the same time.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, that's America right, right there. You know, We can do both.
3: We can make everything just so bad.
2: Now, I, th- I think we've already laid
1: out the reasons why this is not that. But yeah. from a child care perspective, and we should be clear, we're three guys who do not have children. Um, not too long ago, punching out, we had uh, – who was it? It was Lou and Lisa talking about –
2: Lou and Kate, I believe. Sorry.
1: Yes, uh, talking about child care and uh, you should listen to that episode. It was good. Like, right now, go do that instead. Yeah, turn
3: this off, go listen to that episode, and
2: then come back to this, maybe. Yeah. And tell us how stupid we sound.
1: If you're still here,
2: though, we do have to fill out our hour. Um, do we? It's it. Are we sure? Isn't that just make work? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Let's start applying the principles of socialism to our own, uh, <laughs> our own collective podcast that we run.
2: Yeah, I like that idea. Um, Prefigurative politics.
1: I guess, where should we begin with... Uh, how to make the child care thing
2: well, better? Well, the first thing we should is have some. Like, that's the first problem. Um, one of the things, so we read a number of articles on child care beforehand. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm familiar with this yeah. from talking to people who have kids that I know. And one of the major obstacles that you have is simply that it's not very available in the mm-hmm. first place. If you are lucky, you have, again, a relative or a friend, somebody who can take care of your kids. If not, then you're probably forking over for a place that has you know keeps its licenses up to code and whatever you're probably forking over four to five digits a year mm-hmm. if and and that's on the low end of the scale so you've got a lot of there there's certainly money to be had in the childcare business but people just aren't getting into it regardless because it's hard work mm-hmm. it involves a lot of low paid uh difficult work and and the people who end up profiting from it are probably never setting foot in the actual, you know, building. Mm-hmm.
1: And I do want to make a distinction here, which is this is separate work from that of teaching. Which yes. Which is a conflation I think the Harris proposal makes, which is, you know – This idea that, okay, we can just have them in the same place we already have.
2: Yeah, because 90% of the country thinks teaching is just glorified babysitting, Mm -hmm. uh, which is why everyone can do it better than the people currently doing it.
3: I raised my kids so, you know, I can teach them too. Exactly. What else do I
2: need to know? I mean, look at the – we have a bigger homeschooling movement than pretty much any other country on the planet. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for that and it's because we don't um, – American culture does not trust anyone telling you what to do and it does not trust anyone being smarter than you as a feature of why they do what they do. And teachers are both of those things.
3: I think the language uh, kind of gives it away here. It's the, the family friendly act. <laughs> well, the way you yeah. make a family friendly society is by encouraging people to spend times with their families. Mm-hmm. You carve out spaces for them to do that by like r- lowering the work day, lowering the school day, both of which are already too long. So uh, an example, you know, I-, I think is a good model to consider is what Iceland does for its uh, school day. First of all, they don't work nearly as much. They have significantly right. more vacation days. So that's the start. But they also were confronted uh, 20, 30 years ago with the problem of kind of teenage antisocial behavior. Kids were staying out till midnight. They were getting drunk too much, you know, classic kids, classic stuff. kid stuff, but you know, taken too far, it becomes a problem. And I recognize that. And so their solution to that was essentially by creating community, Mm-hmm. They encourage kids after school to join, join organized sports teams. So that's a big part of Icelandic culture now is a kind of an after school sports program. And then also, and I think this is the significant part, they encourage family participation in after school mm-hmm. stuff. So encouraging family to spend time with their kids uh, as a specific part of these programs is, I think, what would actually be a family-friendly program. Mm-hmm. That's how kids learn. That's how kids develop healthy behaviors is by spending time with their family, not by spending so much time with teachers or Mm childcare professionals or NGOs or, you know, people who don't have that vested interest in them.
2: And not just organized sports and teams, though that was a big part of it, but also things like art and music and dance and other creative pursuits. So I think what was key about that proposal is that it gave the children agency. It allowed the children to make choices about this is what I want to do with my time, The way that we treat these things in the United States is, uh, at least for the subset of students that I have, is we give them a list of boxes to check off. You have to do all of these things or you won't have a good life. Children are treated as things to be wrangled instead of as,
1: you know, people.
2: Yeah. And the irony of it is that the people who most tell you to treat the children as fully formed human beings and everything – are the same people who are also insisting that they also all need to have the grades and activity sheets and recommendations and whatever to get into any school that they desire ever. So, I mean, part of treating children as people means acknowledging that sometimes they don't want to do things, and that's fine, uh, but sometimes they don't want to do the things you want them to do. And it seems like the Icelandic model preserved a large role for the children themselves in determining their future in a way that I... Don't know that I see, uh, the US at this point as being capable of even implementing because we work too much, because we don't spend enough time in community, because we have a natural cultural distrust of attempting to create community and really of attempting to create anything. We have a weird distrust of like anyone explicitly saying we're going to do this. So, um, it, it's the kind of model that I, I wish we could make. That changes like shortening the school day, shortening the work day, giving people more vacation, uh, paying them more for the labor that they are performing. Mm -hmm. Now, for the hypothetical future labor that they'll perform, for the productivity that they're already putting out there into the world, that would enable us to start thinking about uh, something like the Icelandic model. It would enable us to actually have the space to say, you should spend more time with your kids. You should take your kids to more stuff. You know, don't hang around the house all day and things like that. Uh, In that article, Rich, I remember it mentioned that like kids are not allowed to stay out after 10 or midnight.
3: Yeah, uh, Iceland Iceland has a curfew on its its teenagers. And
2: like that would be uh, almost entirely unacceptable. Um, Unless
3: they're people of color, in which case they're intensely policed and uh, subject to very severe curfews. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. So for the white kids – uh, that would be a non-flyer in the, United, in the United States, and those are the parents that you need to uh, convince of these things, unfortunately, at the moment. But the thing about it is that if those parents spend more time with their children and had a better life, they might be more willing to accept a small, you know, yeah, I guess my kid can't go out after midnight, whatever. You know, uh, we've had a full day together.
3: I'd say my most antisocial behaviors as a child were the direct result of the fact that my parents both worked full time. Mm. And so I would come home from school and have three hours, just unstructured time to kind of do whatever I wanted. Mm. And I did not use that and, time well. And, and
1: this was at an age where you no longer needed child Right. Care. And this,
3: this is post-child. This is right. when I was like already a young teenager. And I I don't, I don't even know what the law is. I think probably they shouldn't have left me alone. But, you know, who's, who's watching? I was
2: imagining three-year-old Reg <laughs> just. Like, I mean, I w- <laughs> don't get me wrong. My,
3: my grandma was watching me as a child. But like yeah. she was also kind of old and feeble. So we took a, a lot of advantage of that.
2: Well, and the other thing I like about the Icelandic model, um, so I was – as you might expect from the fact that I'm a teacher, I was a kid who was good at school, right? And even on the left, we stereotyped these kids as being dorks and nerds, that that's all they ever were good at and wanted to do with their lives. But like frankly, I didn't like school all that much. Like I was good at it but I also wanted to go home and do other things with my time more than I would want to be in the building more.
3: And especially the longer I was in school, the more it was clear, like we were just being warehoused. Yeah. Like we were all ready to be adults. We all had like the basic information we needed to do adult things, but like they legally had to keep us there until we turned 18 Mm -hmm. and keep us there from, what was our school hours? Seven to two or whatever it was.
1: To the end of like Fostering more time for families to be together. There was a, a recent paper put out by the People's Policy Project and the Gravel Institute, which um, unrelated from the Harris proposal, I think this was something they were working on previously and put out just coincidentally the same week. Uh, Serendipity. It's called the, uh, the Leisure Agenda and seeks to reduce this problem of – overwork in american society as we've discussed americans work more than basically any other country uh especially considering our level of productivity A- as productivity increases you know typically countries work less people work less i should say but that's not been the case Again, in the U.S.
2: you know we just do things better over here and,
1: and so they put out some concrete proposals for policies that could go towards changing this fact of american life uh One, increasing the number of federal holidays and help ensure employers comply with new and old federal holidays by requiring that they pay workers 1.5 times their normal pay if they schedule them
2: to work on holidays. Didn't we talk about that on this very show? Yeah. Adding more federal holidays to the calendar? We have
3: so few holidays. Like, we're we're in holiday season. And then after Martin Luther King Day ends, I think for most of us, the next day off is uh, is Memorial Day. It's a six, five-month whatever yeah, span of time. Nope. Pre- that's President's
2: actually – I I get I do get winter and spring break between those two. But yeah. between spring break and Memorial Day, it's six full weeks of school. The only time that happens the entire year.
3: Yeah.
2: And uh, continuing,
1: uh, next proposal is to mandate that employers provide four weeks of paid vacation each year provide public benefits for paid leave and sick leave which mm-hmm. would one thing in addition to our lack of public holidays is we have no mandatory paid leave there's yep. so combined there's very little time that people
2: aren't expected to be working mm-hmm. and 4 weeks of vacation is that even that is minimal there's uh, plenty of countries where 8 weeks is the legal minimum mm-hmm.
1: It, they go on to say that we should be increasing our unemployment benefits and increasing uh, social security benefits because another problem we have is that a lot of people feel they can't retire you know, mm-hmm. and be financially secure. So they're working later and later into life.
2: Again, the thing that these reforms or, or changes, the thing that they preserve is, again, the agency of the people at the center of the issue. Mm-hmm they enable workers to make their own decisions. And in a country that began by allowing children to make their own decisions about some things, mm-hmm. because you know obviously there are things that maybe kids shouldn't be trusted with deciding, but things about themselves, I mm-hmm. think in general, they have the right. And if we started them off that way, we would have a workforce that was mm-hmm. more willing to advocate for itself, that understood itself as people better, and that was less willing to uh, frankly put up with the level of mistreatment and abuse that the American workforce uh, feels forced to.
1: There's another policy solution to this problem that I came across uh, reading an old article, an article from last year in The Atlantic by Connor Williams. He's talking about uh, the uh, Quebec's public child care program, which Mm -hmm. is pretty radical in comparison to what we have here. Uh, Canada, like the U.S., leaves a lot of things to the provincial level, but there's there's a stronger baseline to begin with at the federal level there, and Quebec is more progressive in this regard than any American state. They begin with up to 55 weeks of paid leave for parents when they have or adopt mm-hmm. a child, and a yearly allowance from 500 to about $1,900 that families receive per kid until they turn 18. Quoting from the article, The policy central piece is Quebec's full-day, year-round child care program for all children under five, which the province annually subsidizes with roughly $2 in public funding. Quebec families cover part of the cost on a sliding scale, with the wealthiest families paying around $17 per day for their first child. In 2016, nearly 300,000 children were enrolled in the province's system. And what they found with this program is that, you know, contrary to the complaints from The usual suspects that, you know, this is a cost they can't afford.
3: English speakers.
1: (laughs) Les anglophones, Business owners, mainly. uh, The people who would get taxed to pay for it. It pays for itself because there are more people in the workforce, you know, getting taxed more. And we shouldn't necessarily be making arguments along the lines of, look at what it does to productivity. Look at, you know, it pays for itself because there are things that we on the left want that will not raise productivity. But it's a program that really shows what universally applied policy can do, what what these programs can do for a society.
2: Yeah, and that's the thing. So unfortunately, we still live in an era where you have to make these arguments, uh, at least partly on the economics. But th- the the fact that we have surrendered the moral good of care for our children to dollars and cents. Mm-hmm. is a sign of a deeply um, abused and overworked society. And here's hoping that people get fed up enough to demand better from their state, local, federal mm-hmm. politicians. Because quite frankly, the, the kids of America deserve better than what we've got. right? Exponentially.
1: It's, it's funny, I was reading the article and some of it sounded a little like the we grow schools that we mocked on our last episode, you know, as being a little Mm -hmm. just out there, like they had to, they had some budget cuts and this led to the lamenting that there were no longer croissant sandwiches for the children in these schools, uh, in these childcare programs, you know, it's a level of luxury that the public has instead of Mm -hmm. just being exclusive to the people who can pay what was it,
2: a $36,000 a year tuition for yeah. kindergarten? Yeah. Uh, well, because the difference, of course, is that We Grow ends up profiting one or two people. Mm-hmm. This ends up profiting an entire province. We, we, have, a, we have a real allergy in this. Uh, in, no, no, we don't. Sorry. To bring back what we talked about in the second segment, the, the, our alleged betters, the rich, mm-hmm. sorry, the wealthy, have a
3: people people of wealth
2: people of means people of means yes <laughs> Red power. howard schultz um have an allergy to anything that would allow the rest of us to feel that we are that we are deserving of anything but again from my experience with the children of the rich the people of means um we're all supposed to have the, you know, children are supposed to be children regardless of how they grew up, where they grew up, who their parents are, blah, blah. blah. It, that's not supposed to come into the equation at all. So if that's the case, then it doesn't matter who your parents are and what they do for a living. You deserve the croissant sandwich. You mm-hmm. deserve that level of luxury just like the kid who grew up in a better neighborhood does. I mean we believe that already. Mm-hmm. We- but even, even by their own uh, standard – this is something that the wealthy profess to believe as well.
3: We work so hard for so little. We absolutely deserve more. We deserve the right to raise family, however we define it, with the support of a broader social network that provides us with these days off, with the time to, you know, spend with our children, spend with our family, uh, without having to worry about, uh, the costs of things that are public goods, like childcare, like public education. Uh, like after school at activities like family support programs, et cetera
2: our our children deserve parents they deserve parents who are there, who can take care of them, who can spend time with them, who are not so overworked and mistreated that they are incapable of of performing that function, and they deserve a society that cares about them enough to ensure that that happens
1: i I think that's a wonderful place to wrap up this topic uh, i'm ryan
3: I'm Noah. I was rich.
1: (laughs) This is Punching
0: Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.